Samson then. So if you've not been with us in a while, or, well, we've all had a break, haven't we, for Christmas, we've been going through the book of Judges, and this evening we've got to the last of the Judges, although not to the end of the book of Judges, the last of the Judges, which is Samson. And I'm aware that most of you will probably know something of the story, although I don't presume that everybody knows all the details. And so if you've not come across Samson before, he's he's a bit of a mixed bag, might we say. Uh, On the one hand, he's a bit of a hero, because he begins to save Israel from the nasty Philistines, the enemy of Israel, the enemy of God's people. But the problem is, the way he does it is so questionable, we might say. At times he seems to be driven more by his lust for women than a love for God. And even when he's attacking the Philistines, it seems to be that he's acting out of revenge. And often his revenge is really rather quite petty. And even at the end of his life, Samson loses all of his strength that God gives him, which is one of his distinguishing features. If you don't know about Samson, the first thing you need to know is he's a strong man. Okay, Not because he trained, but because the Spirit of God gave him the strength. Uh, And he used that strength to fight the Philistines. But at the end of his life, he loses all that strength because he gives over the secret of his strength to a Philistine woman. And so when you're trying to read Samson, we work out what we're going to do with him. It's easy on the one hand to see him as just, oh, this is really a bad moral character. He's just given us to show us how Christians shouldn't behave. He had so much potential as a man of God and yet he blew it in so many different ways. And it would be easy to read through the story of Samson and just treat him in that way. A bad example for us not to follow. But if that's the approach we take, then quite quickly we'll find that the Bible is disagreeing with us. So, for example, you could turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and there in that that list of the famous names of the Bible, the heroes of the faith, as it were, there's Samson included, a hero of the faith. Or even as you read through the book of Judges and you read the account, and yes, there's so much here that points out his failures, and yet repeatedly it's telling us the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord was with him. The Spirit of God was upon him. And so for us to to just stand and say, no, he's he's a bad moral character that we shouldn't follow, well, actually the Bible is trying to give us a different view. And so to get the most out of Samson, we need to remember that he's given or rather that his story is written, in order to teach God's people. And so we need to be careful about how we read this account, as we have been with the other judges uh, in the book of Judges. And look especially at the, the way the account is written. What's included and what's excluded. What pictures are given, what illustrations are conveyed. And when we do that, I'm hoping we'll find that Samson is much more than just a standalone fable, as it were. He's much more than just a bad moral character that we need to make sure we don't follow in his footsteps. But actually he becomes a picture for us that stretches backwards into Israel's history, that reflects Israel in the present and even points towards Israel's future and the coming Messiah. And this week I want particularly to focus on the way Samson is a picture of Israel. And hopefully the intention is next week Joseph's going to pick up the rest of the chapters and have a look at the way Samson pictures Jesus for us. That's the intention at the moment. 
So how is Samson then portrayed in these chapters as a reflection of Israel? Well, the first thing to notice is that the account of his life starts with a birth narrative. We're told how Samson's born. Now, that's significant because we don't get that information for any of the other judges. This is the first time it's happened. Okay? Um, and when, uh, well, as we read through the birth narrative, uh, we'll find that Samson is born to a barren woman. Look at verse uh, 3 of chapter 13. The angel of the Lord appeared to her, that is Manoah's wife, and said, you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles or a little bit of Israel's history, that picture will already have started ringing bells for you. The idea of a woman who is childless or barren to be given a son by God is a common biblical picture. And some of the most significant characters in the Bible are born in that way. So you can think back to Isaac, born to Abraham and Sarah, or to Samuel at the beginning of 1 and 2 Samuel, or even, of course, to Jesus. And in those passages that you read of the barren woman being given a child, there's a certain formula that those passages follow. If you read through them all, you'd find, hang on, there's certain details here that are repeated in each one of them. So, for example, it always starts with a statement of the woman's barrenness. It's not just assumed, oh, these people have trouble conceiving. No, it's stated, this woman is barren. Other parts of the formula might include, for example, the promise that God is going to act to reverse that barrenness. So it's not just left to chance or circumstance, but actually God saying, you are barren and I'm promising to give you a son. So you get this promise. You often get a few verses towards the end about the naming of the child. The child's given a certain name. And normally, normally in these passages, you see something of the frustration of the parents. So the parents uh, recognise their situation and they're trying to do something about it. They're trying to act. Perhaps they're praying to God and asking for help. Perhaps they're, in Abraham's case, using other women to try and get this promised son that he was offered. Normally, there's some way that the parents are trying to respond to the situation, or at least that they recognise the situation. Apart from when we read Judges 13, we don't see any of that. We don't see any of that frustration or even acknowledgement from Manoah and his wife about this problem that they're in. And that lack of information does two things for us. First... It links Samson to the situation of Israel. Okay, now it might seem like I made a bit of a jump there, okay, but bear with me. Because, have a look again at chapter 13, verse 1. Do you notice what's strange about verse 1? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Verse 2, a certain man of Zorah, yada, yada, yada. That's all you've got in verse 1. The Israelites did evil, and God delivers them. Now, you might think, well, that's nothing new. That's what Judges is all about, isn't it? Israel falling into sin, turning away from God, falling into sin. And we have seen that Judges is like this big spiral, isn't it? That the people fall into sin, uh, uh, God rescues them, and then they're lifted out. Only then to fall back into further sin, and for God to rescue them and lift them out. But each time... Each time there's that downward stroke of God handing them over to the enemies, 
Israel then recognised their sin. And throughout the book of Judges, we've heard or we've read that the people then repent. Or if they don't repent, they at least cry out to God and ask for his help. And here in Judges 13 verse 1, you get none of that. The silence is deafening, as it were. Israel have fallen into sin and they don't care. There's no response. There's no realisation of the situation that they're in. And that stands in stark, uh, not contrast, but um, uh, as a a parallel with Manoah and his wife's situation. Here are this couple who's childless. They should be crying out to God like all the other times we see this in the Bible, and yet they're not. And again, the silence is deafening, as it were. It links the story of Samson to the story of Israel. And the second thing it does is it shows us then that into both situations, God is the one who acts. God is the one who makes the first move. Manoah and his wife, they're not crying out. They're not asking. They're not praying. We're not even certain that they realise that they're childless. Of course, they realise that they're childless, but perhaps they don't realise that, that, that Manoah's wife is sterile. And yet God acts. God sends his angel. And Israel are in sin. And they're not repenting. They're not turning to God. And yet God acts. God makes the first move. And that's not just true in the present situation, but it's been true throughout Israel's history. Think back to centuries earlier, when Israel were at Mount Sinai, as we read earlier from Exodus 19. Didn't God repeat the same thing to them there? How God had carried them on eagles' wings out of Egypt. How God had brought them to himself. How God had saved them and made them a people for himself. You could read a similar address in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God tells the Israelites specifically, look, it's not because you're more numerous than any other nation. It's not because you're any better. It's not because you're any more holy. It's not because you've done anything to deserve my action that I've saved you and called you my people. I've done it just because I love you, because I want you. Because I've made you my own. And so the way that Samson's birth account is written uh, is written with an intention to remind the reader of the state that Israel are currently in and also the way that God has dealt with Israel throughout their history. The way that Israel received her own birth, as it were, as it were from God. How else are Samson and Israel linked then? Well, we've already seen that both Israel and Samson are the result of God choosing to create a people for himself. It's an undeserved and an unrequested privilege. God acts. God makes the first move. He makes them his people, whether that's Samson, his child, or whether it's Israel, his nation. But with that privilege, God adds responsibility. With that privilege, God adds responsibility. You are saved, you are rescued by a gracious act of God. He carries you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. You will be my treasured possession, God said to Israel. If, you will be my treasured possession if you obey my commands. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant. God had said to Israel, you're going to be a holy nation. 
You're going to be separate. You're going to be distinct. You're going to be devoted to me because I have saved you. Those Ten Commandments that we read, they start, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. God acts. God saves. God rescues. And the responsibility on the people is faithfulness to him. That was a message to Israel at Sinai. And here at Samson's birth, it's a similar message. Look at verse 4 and 5. The angels come to Manoah's wife, told her, you're going to conceive and have a son. Verse 4, now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This son is offered. The privilege is given. But with that privilege comes responsibility. This son is going to be a Nazarite set apart from me. Set apart for me. That idea of Nazarite comes up in uh, Numbers chapter 6. It comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, which I think means just separate or distinct. And it's a set of vows that would normally be taken, it could be taken by any uh, Israelite, just to say, I'm committing myself to God. And normally it would be done for a period of time. Uh, the, the person would commit to uh, not drinking any uh, alcohol or any fruit of the vine, as it were, um, not touching any unclean thing, especially no dead body, and not having their hair shaven. And it was like a, a vow to God, a, a, a period of devotion to him, uh, to, set, to set yourself aside from the others in the community, to be especially holy for a period of time uh, while you made that vow. And Samson is to be committed to God throughout all of his life. He's to be separate. He's to be holy, to be distinct. Among the Israelites, Samson is to be set apart. Among the nations of the world, Israel was intended to be set apart. How did each of them fare in keeping that responsibility that God had given them then? Well, As I said earlier, if you know much about the Samson story, words like holy and devoted are not words that immediately spring to mind when you think of Samson. Okay. In fact, Samson actually, you could read through and find places that he breaks every part of that Nazarite vow throughout his life. And at times, as we said earlier, he seems to be driven less by his love for God than he is for his love of women, beautiful women, Philistine women at that Uh, is seduced by the temptress and the prostitute and those women would eventually become his downfall. And according to Judges chapter 14 now, verse 3, uh, Samson pictures Israel in the way that he follows these lustful desires. Um, Chapter 14, verse 3, Samson says, um, Samson said to his father, get her for me, she's the right one for me. She's the right one for me. If you've got an ESV Bible, it'll say there, uh, she's the one who is right in my eyes. Now that sort of wording should prompt you to, to remember a bit of a refrain that we see throughout the book of Judges, especially in the last chapters. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit in his own eyes. Samson here is acting according to what he sees fit in his own eyes. Get that woman for me. She's the one who's right in my eyes. 
Israel, we're told throughout the book of Judges, acts according to what they see as fit in their own eyes. And uh, just as Samson uh, breaks many of these Nazar- all of these Nazarite vows through, through his relationships with these women, um, so also that language of prostitution and uh, adultery is used later by the prophets to describe Israel's turning away from God to serve foreign gods and idols. So the pattern then of Samson's life, in his birth and in his life, is a reflection of the way that Israel is living and the way Israel is turned away from God. But it would be no good, would it, if Samson was just a reflection of Israel. It'd be no good if Samson was just another one of those, just another pile of uh, rubbish to heap onto the, the steaming mound of refuse. Samson's got to do more than that. And as we read through these chapters, we can see that he's not just a reflection of Israel, but he also becomes a rebuke to Israel. It doesn't just show them what they are, it also ends up showing them what they should have been. Now you get this in two ways. Now the first and most obvious way is when you look later at the disastrous events at the end of his life, chapter 16 especially. Um, Samson eventually will lose all of his strength as the Spirit of God departs from him. And Samson ends up getting uh, beaten up, his eyes are gouged out, he gets dragged away and locked up in a Philistine prison uh, in a foreign land. And the the way that Samson's life ends uh, is surely a lesson to Israel that if you continue in this way of idolatry, just look at where it will lead you to. Just look at where you're going to end up. If you know, again, something of the history of Israel, you'll know that's exactly how they end. They get beaten up by a foreign country and dragged off in prison to a foreign land. Their idolatry leads them to exile. And so Samson's uh, life uh, is, in that sense, a rebuke to Israel, showing them what will come if they don't turn away from their sin. But there's also, I want to focus on this peculiar incident in chapter 14, that serves as a kind of uh, parable for Israel. It doesn't just show them how they will end up, but it shows them what they should have been doing, how they should have been living. Now in chapter 14, you sort of jump fairly suddenly from Menorah and his wife into Samson's life. And Samson's now all grown up. Well, we're not really told how old he is. Uh, Although, if he's not still an adolescent, then he's certainly immature in the way he thinks and acts, isn't he? And Samson, in chapter 14, has spotted a woman. And uh, you, the emphasis is on what he's seen. He's seen a woman, uh, rather than uh, any quality in her of uh, being a good marriage partner. It's what he sees that he likes. And he says to his father, get her for me. And despite the, the desperate pleas of his mother and father, and you can imagine that the fierce arguments with this stubborn lad over the, the kitchen table, Samson won't back down. His parents are just saying, come on, Samson, can't you get some, somebody more respectable? Isn't there anybody in all, in all of our extended family? No, not even the fam- not even the tribe, not even in, in the nation. Isn't there any Israelite that you could have? Rather than going to those uncircumcised, unclean, dirty Philistines, isn't there anybody more respectable, Samson? And he says, no, she's the one who's right in my eyes. She's the one I like. Now, if it weren't for the details of the rest of the story... You might chalk this up to, you know, this tenacity 
to true love, maybe. Maybe it's just that he really deeply is devoted to her. Unfortunately, that's not the reason he's so committed to her. He, he just likes what he sees and he's driven by true lust. But fortunately, into this difficult situation, um, the narrator gives us some important information. Look at verse 4, chapter 14, verse 4. God is at work here. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. You see, it was always God's intention to use Samson to save Israel from the Philistines. That had been said in chapter 13, verse 5. God was going to use Samson to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. And this somewhat irrational, unreasoned, hasty, foolish decision of Samson can still be used by God to achieve God's purpose. It can still be used by God to achieve his plan. Because that's the sort of God that that God is. God is not one to be outwitted by our own foolishness or sinfulness even. God's power extends even over our weakest moments. And he can even turn those weak moments round to serve his purposes. And that's a real help to the narrator. And I'm sure it would have been a help to Menorah and his wife if they'd heard it. But unfortunately, I don't think they did. They just had to sit by, obedient to God as best they could be, and watch it all unfold. Anyway, Samson and his parents head off then down to Timna. And you can imagine the tension in the car on the way there. Turn the radio up a bit more to avoid having to look at one another, you know. Samson desperate that this is the woman they want, and Menorah and his wife perhaps weeping that, what have they done wrong? Where did it all go wrong with Samson? And anyway, as they're obviously not in a car, walking along, uh, they approach the town of Timna. And for some reason, Samson seems to be on his own. Maybe he's gone off to take a toilet break or uh, who knows. But Samson, while he's on his own, a lion jumps out and that roars at him and pounces on him. Okay. Now, in your mind's eye, as you're painting this picture of Samson walking down the road, don't paint one of these storybook lions with a nice big cuddly mane and, and a big wide smile on his, on his face and, you know, no teeth, he's just all gums, you know. That's not the sort of lion that's jumping out here. This is a, this is a fierce, angry, powerful lion with a huge roar and big paws and a, and a big strong back and he's out to kill Samson. And as well, if you know the story, it'd be quite easy to jump into complacency here because you think, ah, no, Samson's he's a strong guy. This will be a fair match at least, you know. Let's, let's sit back and, and watch the excitement. But actually, in the narrative, there's nothing yet that's told us that Samson's going to be given strength. We don't know yet that Samson is a strong man. Okay? We only know that with hindsight. And so as a first-time reader, you're supposed to be watching Samson, who's still potentially this uncoordinated dweeb of a teenager who's all arms and legs and no coordination, you know. And here's this lion jumping out of the bushes ready to eat him. And what on earth is going to happen? How is he going to get out of this one? And uh, then we read uh, verse uh, 6. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Just as quickly as the lion appeared, so as quickly the Spirit of the Lord appears. And it gives him great strength, so that he tears the lion apart with his bare hands, 
as he might have torn a young goat. Now, recall what God's intention had been for Samson. God's intention for Samson was that he would begin to save Israel from the Philistines. And here he is, Samson, and he's just about to start approaching the town of Timnah, the town where Samson's first going to clash with the Philistines. And God sends a lion to Samson. And God rushes upon Samson and gives him the strength to fight off the lion. And if you see this as a, as a as an act of God, as it were, as God orchestrating this lion coming to attack Samson and, and God's spirit rushing upon him to defend him. Uh, well, actually, you see that this, is, this event is teaching Samson something. This event is teaching Samson that, look, when that mighty, powerful lion jumped out and roared at you and was ready to kill you, you didn't need to be afraid because my spirit came upon you in power and helped you. And the lesson for Samson is going to be, when you enter Timnah and you face the mighty roaring power of the Philistines, you needn't be afraid because my power will come upon you and save you. And interestingly, when King David, many years later, would stand and face Goliath, that Philistine, and be ready to kill him, and all, his, uh, all, all the Israelite army are saying, no, 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 David, you can't go out. David says... God has helped, God has protected me as I fought off the lion and the bear with this sling. God will protect me as I go out and fight against the Philistine giant. So with this sort of reading, what it means is this lion that jumps out upon Samson, I'm not saying it's a, it's just, it's all just a fable or a parable. I think this did happen. But what's happening here as well is that God is teaching uh, Samson. That just as he's rescued him from the lion, so he will rescue him from the Philistines. And so the lion, in that sense, represents the Philistines. Now, a few months later, Samson is passing that way again. And remembering this heroic feat, feat that so impressed him, he decides to take a little detour off his path to visit the carcass of the lion. And what did he find there in the carcass? Chapter 14, verse 8 Sometime later, when he went back to Maria, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate. Who cares about those Nazarite vows? But you don't pass up an opportunity like this for free food, okay? Get in there, Samson. Get the honey. And he eats the honey. Now, again, you don't have to know much about bees to find it improbable that bees might make a nest, or a hive, as it were, in the carcass of a lion. So what is going on here? Why have we got these bees making honey in the carcass of a lion? Well, I think it's the honey that gives us the clue. And in the Old Testament, the honey is, is used reasonably sparingly. Sometimes it's used to describe the sweetness of God's word. But more commonly, it's used to describe the promised land. Israel, as a nation, were rescued out of Egypt. And God said, I'm going to deliver you to the promised land. What will that land be like? A land flowing with milk and honey. Where was that land? The land that Israel was supposed to take is the land that the Philistines were living in. And the way that they were supposed to take it is Israel was supposed to go into the land, put the Philistines to death, and then take that land as their land flowing with milk and honey. 
And so what we see in this, uh, this episode with the lion and the bees is that what's happened is, this is a picture of what should have happened with Israel. Israel should have swept into the land, put the Philistines to death, and then enjoyed the goodness of that land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And that's what Samson experienced with the lion. The protection of God as he defeated the lion, and then the bees coming in uh, and making the honey, and Samson enjoyed that honey. To further support this reading, that word of swarm of bees is actually a word community of bees. It's a community of bees living in that in the in the carcass. A word community normally only reserved for people, God's people especially, the community of the Israelites. And so this picture is showing the Israelites, look at what you could have been. If you'd have only been faithful to God, if you'd have only depended upon him, if you'd have only driven out the Philistines, you could have been enjoying this land flowing with milk and honey. But as it is, you've succumbed to the Philistines. You sit with them as rulers over your head. And you're even happy to sit complacently in this situation. So we begin to see then how Samson's life is one that is so... It's wrapped up in symbolism and imagery. It does contain good examples and bad examples. But it's really a living parable to Israel. Showing them what they are, what they've become. But also what they could have been. And so the lesson to Israel is quite clear. As God's covenant people, as God's community of holy people, as God's nation, as his treasured possession, you've forgotten your commitment to him. You're not living as that holy, distinct nation that you should be. You're not living as that holy, distinct nation that you once promised to be. Instead, you've become just like the world around you. And as a result of that, you've become overtaken by the world around you. Samson's life is a call then to Israel to turn back to God. Turn back to the God who first saved them. And it's a warning about what will happen if they don't turn back. It's a warning about where their trajectory will lead them. It could all end in tears, in abandonment, exile and even destruction. And if that was the message to Israel, then isn't it also the message to the church today? If Israel was that treasured possession of God, a kingdom of priests and holy nation, if that's what Israel was, doesn't the New Testament also teach us that the church today is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And just like Israel, that holy nation was called to remain faithful to the covenant, aren't Christians also called to remain faithful, to be obedient, to be holy and separate and distinct from the world around them? Yes, we, we affirm that we are saved by grace, through faith. And we would agree that there's not one jot that you can add to your justification by the way you work or serve. But we would also say, true saving faith is a faith that yields obedience. So much so that, that Paul starts his, his letter to the Romans by saying, you have been called to, not faith, but obedience. You've been called to obedience that comes from faith. Not you've been called to faith that leads to obedience. He says you've been called to obedience 
that comes from faith. Or James would, would challenge us to say, look, you show me your faith that doesn't have works. You show me your faith that doesn't have obedience. You show me your faith without devotion to God and I will show you a faith that is dead. And the book of Hebrews puts it even more bluntly. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Are you living with a disregard for sin? Do you live like Samson did and like Israel before him did with a total disregard for those vows and promises that you have made to God? That promise to obey him. That commitment to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Your whole life. Not just part of it. Not just the Sunday morning or the evening. Not just a a, a portion of your relationships. Are you committed to that, that promise that you made to give yourself, your whole self, as a living sacrifice? Are you committed to that vow to consider yourself no longer your own master, but belonging to Jesus Christ, your saviour, your Lord, and yes, your master? Do you presume upon the grace of God? Just like Samson and Israel did, where they, they acted in a way that said, oh, my sin doesn't matter. The reason it, I know it doesn't matter is because, well, nothing bad's happened so far, has it? Life goes on, the world keeps turning, sin can't be all that serious. My sin won't affect me in the way that perhaps it might affect other people. It's not, it's not too much of an issue if I, if I continue in, in these sins in this way. It won't affect me the way it's affected others. Did Samson expect his sin to lead him into the situation that it did? Eyes gouged out, sat in a prison, exiled. Did Israel expect their idolatry and sin to lead them to have forfeited their promised land? Do you presume upon the grace of God? Do you decide right and wrong based on your own internal desires? rather than the command of God. Samson found a woman who was right in his own eyes. Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. As they decided what's right and wrong, what's good to do, what's not good to do, they're driven not by the word of God, the instruction that God has given us, but they're driven by their own lust, their own appetites, their own desire for comfort and ease and personal satisfaction and... Isn't it so easy for us to base our own actions on our internal desires? What feels right? What feels good? What I judge to be best for me? And to ignore the clear command of God because it doesn't feel quite as bad as it's made out to be. Maybe that's in the area of sexual sin. It doesn't really feel as bad as God's word makes it out to be. Maybe it's in the area of anger. Anger or bitterness. It feels good, doesn't it, when you get your own back on someone? It doesn't feel quite as bad as God's word makes it out to be. Right, the way we lead our families or treat our spouse or our children. It doesn't seem to be doing as much damage as perhaps God's word might teach me it does. What about your holiness or your devotion to God? Is it really all that serious if your Christianity only really shows itself on a Sunday? At least it's once a week, right? 
it's all too easy to slip into a, into a mindset that defines for ourselves what is right and wrong instead of taking instruction from God's word. And if you're feeling strong in your faith, if you, in good conscience, can look at your life and say, actually, I am committed to God. I am seeking to, to honour him and, and, and live for him in, in my life. Then don't assume that these words aren't for you. These are for us all to hear regularly. 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, these things happen to those, that is Israel, as examples. And were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, if you think you're living a life of holiness, if you think you're happy, satisfied, resting secure in God, then that's good. But be careful. Watch out. Make sure you don't fall. Heed these examples. Before we close this evening, I want to offer a little bit of light into what might otherwise be a a rather gloomy message. Because although Samson ends up as a mirror, as a reflection of Israel, and although he serves as like a living rebuke towards Israel of how they should be living, uh, Samson originally was raised up as a saviour for his people. God raised him up in order to save his people. Only as a saviour, Samson's work is somewhat incomplete, ineffective, He doesn't quite do the job that he was intending to do. At best, he only really does begin to save. He makes a very small dint into the situation. And although this week we focus more on his failures and on the imagery of unfaithfulness and disobedience that we see, Samson also does serve as a forerunner to Christ. He points us towards our true saviour. We're going to look at this more next week, but consider for a moment who else, just like Samson, was born to a childless woman, announced by an angel to both his mother and his doubting father, was devoted to God even from the womb in order that he might come as a saviour for his people. That's all true of Samson. But it's a pointer towards Jesus Christ, of whom it is also true. Who else, like Samson, lived his life performing many miraculous works during his life, only to be rejected by his own people, because he was a political threat to their own safety. That was true of Samson. But it's also a pointer to Jesus Christ, who lived in that way. Who else can you think of, just like Samson, who was betrayed by a close friend for money, betrayed unto his death, was mocked and derided immediately before his death, who died with his arms outstretched in an act of personal sacrifice, and yet in the end brought salvation to many more in his death than he ever did in his life. That's all true of Samson. But it's a pointer towards Jesus, the true Saviour. Samson is not just a picture of our own sinfulness. He's a picture of our true Saviour, the one who can not just show us what is wrong with our lives, but also who has the power to resolve that issue too. Hopefully we'll look at that next week and see more of what that means for us.